Father, it is to the glory of you, our triune God, God the Father, the Son, the Spirit, that we come to you and worship you and thank you for giving us a story to tell, a story of Christ come to this earth, his life, death, resurrection, ascension to his throne. I pray, Lord, we would be faithful to you by singing and listening to your word with obedient hearts. Grant us that we would obey these things. Stir in us your spirit. Cause us, compel us to obedience. Lord, we need your word. It is the very bread of life. And so we ask that we would submit to it and you would help us in this. Especially for those who don't know you, call them to salvation. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as always, it is such a huge blessing to be with you and to study God's Word and sing God's Word together. We are studying the book of 1 Peter. If you have a Bible, open up to 1 Peter. If you don't have a Bible, there are some friendly folks walking around our sanctuary that will hand you a Bible. Get that Bible and open to chapter 1 of 1 Peter, and we have made it down to verse 13. As you know, Peter is writing to the elect exiles. These are the people who were Christians who had been persecuted and were scattered all over the Roman Empire. Specifically, Peter named an area which would be in and around modern Turkey for us, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. These people were in strange places surrounded by strange people and strange customs who are all worshiping strange gods. And Peter is going to teach them in his letter how then should they live. He's going to teach Christians how to behave and how to think and how to operate and relate in this world. To borrow John's words, what does it mean to be in the world and not of the world? John, of course, reporting exactly what Jesus prayed. What does it mean to relate and live in the world but not become worldly? And that's what this letter of 1 Peter is all about. It was to spread around the application of the gospel to gospel living, to Christian life. Now in that first section, that first chunk of verses that we looked at, first couple of paragraphs, if you have the ESV, you can see it marked in two paragraphs, verse 3 to 12, Peter wanted the people to be full of joy for what God had done for them. He talked about rejoicing over and over again. He even repeats that word several times. In fact, he starts out that whole section even with a little phrase that almost sounds like a, a song, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he lays out the reasons we should be praising and blessing our Lord Jesus Christ and God the Father because of the Spirit. Today, we are going to see that Peter did what a lot of New Testament writers did, most prominently in the Apostle Paul. He went from theology or doctrine, dogma, to praxis, to application. In fact, you'll notice this if you do much New Testament study. There's, there's that word, therefore, that verse 13 starts with. It often is the case in these New Testament epistles. You have this doctrine. This is what to believe. This is what God has accomplished on your behalf. This is who Christ is. This is who the Spirit is. This is what God has done for you. Therefore, 
And then you'll see some commands, some imperatives laid out. This is exactly what Peter does. Therefore, verse 13 is the Greek word dio, therefore, followed by a number of imperatives. In fact, if you want to, you can underline these imperatives. We're not going to get to all of these imperatives today, but I'm going to show you at least a couple of them this morning. The first command there is right there in verse 13. Therefore, set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The second imperative, the second command, he says, don't be conformed. And of course, that's culminated in that idea, be holy, verse 15. And he quotes from Leviticus, be holy, for I am holy. The third command is to conduct yourselves with fear. That's verse 17. You can underline that. The fourth command is found in 22, love one another earnestly. Then in chapter 2, we have a fifth and final command before he goes back to some doctrine. He says, long for the pure spiritual milk. So we're going to walk through these five commands this week and next, Lord willing, possibly a third week, depending on how long we take. So let's jump into this. I'm just going to read to you verses 13 to 21, and uh, hopefully we'll make it through a couple, if not the first three commands there. Verse 13 1 Peter chapter 1, follow along as I read out loud. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time of exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him the glory so that your faith and hope are in God. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. My youngest daughter, Molly Bishop Eliph, we named her after my great-grandmother, Sue Etta Bishop. We didn't just put Bishop in there because I am a bishop at the local church. We put that in there after Sue Etta Bishop. At the end of her life, she had, uh, had been ill and she had some problems and she had fallen and broken her hip, as happens. And uh, she, she was in pain and she had some struggles but her mind was still very clear, and she knew more than the rest of her life, she knew that the end was coming, that very soon her days would end and she would be ushered in the presence of her Savior. And so she asked her pastor if he could uh, get her a Barca lounger. Do we even have Barca loungers anymore? It's like a lazy boy. He, she said, get a Barca lounger, put it in my Sunday school classroom, 
and have a deacon every day come pick me up and he can sit me in there, I can read. And if you have anybody who needs to hear the message of the gospel, just send them into that room and I'll share the gospel with them. And so that's what my great-grandmother did. She would share gospel with people, any, anybody who would come in. And in the last few weeks of her life, she led a number of people to saving knowledge of Christ. She wanted to zero in on that. She died just a few weeks after she began to do this. She zeroed in on the fact that life is short and her hope was fixed on Jesus Christ. She understood life is coming to an end. It sort of reminds us of that little poem by C.T. Studd. I'm sure you've heard it. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Looking at death in the face, she became obsessed with the one thing she could do, and that is share the gospel with people, to give people what really matters, to focus on what Machen would say is the unseen world, the true reality for everyone is the ultimate reality, the eternal matters of our life. I have a pastor friend. He spoke about an old deacon, the most faithful deacon who ever served in his church. He was dying of prostate cancer, and my friend went to him in the hospital and asked him what were the greatest things, the greatest memories in your life. And without hesitation, the old fellow responded, the two greatest things that ever happened in my life were number one, getting saved, and number two, getting prostate cancer. And my friend said, what in the world? What do you mean getting prostate cancer? He said, six years ago when the doctor told me I had 72 months to live, I became obsessed with living for Jesus Christ. And living in light of eternity, undiluted from that point on, filled my heart with such joy. It changed me. It was the most fulfilling six years of my life were the final six years. Isn't that good? Shouldn't we live like that our entire lives? My mother was the same way as she was about to pass away. You couldn't go and talk to her about the weather or football games or some war or some politician. She just wanted to talk about Christ, the one whom she would see very soon. Well, this is what Peter wanted the people to do. He wanted them to focus like this their entire lives, especially as they lived in difficult situations, in a difficult world as exiles. And that's what he says there in verse 13. Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This brings us to point number one. Have hope. Have hope. Now, obviously, this does not mean what we usually mean when we say have hope. Like, hold out hope. That girl is going to fall in love with you. If you just keep trying, it's going to happen. Have hope. You're going to feel better. You're going to get better. I'm sure you will. Your suffering will one day end, I'm sure. Things will turn around for you. These are useless bromides. We've covered this already as we've studied this idea of hope, Christian hope. Christian hope is not like crossing your fingers, not like carrying a rabbit's foot or just having positive thinking. It's certainly not being focused on having a better life now. Christian hope is focused on the triune God. And so Christian hope is anchored. It is certain. It is the eager expectation of what God, who cannot lie, has promised us. 
And he has a perfect record of keeping his promises. God is a million and zero. He's never failed. And so we fix our minds and hearts on him. We fix our minds on what he said, on what he's promised, on who he is. Well, let me give you some notes here. Peter introduces this idea of hope in a beautiful way, so let's put this all together. He starts out by saying, preparing your minds for action. That phrase is literally, gird up the loins of your mind. In the ancient world, of course, men would wear these tunics or uh, togas or something like that. And if they needed to move quickly, they would reach down between their feet and grab the back of their robe and pull it up to the front and tuck it in their belt. You've probably seen this in paintings or pictures. And so then they had agility and they could move around quickly if they needed to run or move or work or do something that caused them to just be, need to be ready, to be prepared. They would gird up their loins and it created these sort of pantaloons as they would stand there and they could move quickly. Well, this is, a, this is essentially what he's saying about our minds. Be ready. Be prepared. Prepare your mind. Be ready for what comes your way. Be ready for peace or for war. Be ready for abundance or for, for poverty. Be ready for pain and difficulty or for pleasure and joy. How do we do this? Peter says, set your hope fully on the grace that's coming your way. And the translations differ. You probably heard it in the way I said it. The translations differ. He says uh, that we brought to you or that was brought to you in the revelation of Christ. I think scholars generally agree that he's talking about something in the future. Setting your hope on the promise of what is in the future. What is in the future for a Christian? Well, it's either being united with Christ after death or it's being united with Christ when he comes. We set our hope that what he said is true. Just like the early saints would set their hope on the coming Messiah, we too, though we look back at what Christ has accomplished, we too look forward to a coming Messiah. And we set our hopes on this. You prepare your mind. You think about this. You meditate on this. You pray about this. This is what it means to set your hope and preparing your mind for action means you Prepare your mind for this. He says, and being sober-minded, a drunk, and I feel I should ask people who are high or tripping or tweaking or whatever drug we've normalized now. What is true about a drunk is a couple of things. One, they lose their grip on reality. It's an escape from reality. That's why an ugly, boring guy thinks he's gorgeous and hilarious when he's drunk. It's an escape from reality. You need to go look at yourself in the mirror. A drunk doesn't have reality. He escapes from reality. The other thing that happens to drunks is they lose motor skills, right? They lose their ability to function. It's essentially the exact opposite of what Peter just said about being prepared and being ready. They have escaped reality into a place where they can't do things quickly. They're not agile. They're cumbersome and clumsy. Well, we definitely need to be cautious about substance abuse, of course, even if it's prescribed, by the way. We need to be careful about these things. But more than that, and I think this is what Peter's getting at, we need to foster in our hearts spiritual and doctrinal acuity, a readiness, a preparedness, an awareness. Where am I spiritually? Where is my family? Where is my marriage? 
Where am I spiritually in relation to my church? What about the sins that I battle? Am I ready for war to break out in the United States? Am I ready for war to break out in my family? Am I ready to be assaulted with cancer? Am I prepared? Am I sober-minded? Am I focused in on who Christ is and what His promises are? There's a lot of people who think the way to live the life is to extract mental effort and just focus on emotions to not prepare our minds. That's interesting because in Paul's letters, one of the things he prays for, we looked at this about 12 years ago. We went through and looked at Paul's letters and asked the question, what does Paul pray for the most for these churches? In the beginning of these letters, he almost always has a prayer. What What are the things that he prays for? And one of the things he prays for the most is knowledge. That our minds and our intellects would grow in Christ. That we would learn about the truths of the gospel and study these things and and learn more and more. We ought to prepare our minds in this way. We shouldn't unhitch ourselves. We should, in in fact, grow. That phrase, set your hope fully, that can be interpreted in, in different ways, but of all the faithful commentaries and preachers I consulted, they agree it means a decisive action, that you are preparing your mind. You're making an effort. You're not just living life automatically. You're taking time every day to be prepared. You're thinking about it. That's why this is a command. Set your hope. I want you to do this. And hopefully the Holy Spirit will spur you to obedience in this way. You've got a flesh. You have the residue of that old man. Even if a Christian, you have war against that old man, and that old man wants to be lazy, and he wants to fill your mind with other preoccupations. No, you want to fill it with God's Word and prepare your mind, focusing on the hope that is coming our way. Well, this is true not just in a mental way. It also should be true in external and a physical way. And this is where Peter moves in the next command. Look there, beginning in verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am. Am holy. Number two, be holy. Be holy. Now, you legalists out there, I just want to put in parentheses, not holier than thou. This has nothing to do with comparing yourself with other people. Sometimes when we hear that word holy, we, we think, well, that is an effort that only pious hypocrites make. No, this is a command over and over all throughout Scripture Pious hypocrites, we think of their holiness, only in respect to other people. They are trying to be holier than thou. They are trying to look holy in respect to other people. That is not the command here, to be holy. Peter says be holy essentially in two different ways. The first is to encourage us to live as an obedient child. And I want you to think about that. In, in contrast, a, a disobedient child indulges his simple, immediate, carnal desires. He sees his sister with a toy that he wants, and he just grabs it right out of her hand. He just indulges himself immediately. An obedient child has been taught, and he knows, and he is compelled by the commands of his parents to do what is right. Now, that's what 
Peter is inciting in our hearts. Peter, uh, he presses this analogy even more. He says, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Now let's just hunker down right here for a few minutes. It's obvious here that uh, Peter had the same anthropology. That's what you understand, a theology or a, the study of man. His anthropology was the same as Paul and John and the prophets and David and Moses and Jesus. Which is to say, he held to a biblical anthropology. He firmly believed what the Bible says about mankind, the nature of humans. What does the Bible say about mankind? Moses was preaching to that second generation of Israelites. The first generation had died in the wilderness. He was preaching to that second generation. It's essentially what the book of Deuteronomy is, is a sermon or perhaps two sermons. And he says in chapter 29, verse 4, he said, God has not yet granted you hearts that would understand, hearts that would truly hear or see or know. In other words, God has to do something to you before you even have the desire to understand and know and hear Him. You're not born naturally with a desire to know God. And this is what Moses taught earlier. If you read his earliest book, the book of Genesis, this is exactly what he taught at the very beginning. There was instant spiritual death. Adam and Eve were walking in fellowship and perfect communion with God. And as soon as they sinned, a wall of separation was built between them and God. Fellowship was broken. And suddenly they were cut off. And they were out of fellowship. They were not walking in unity. They were not walking in fellowship with God. There was separation. And that, the result of that fall, the result of that sin, was the injection of this depravity to the human race. As soon as that happened in Genesis, people start sinning really as much as they can. By chapter 9, you have incest and murder and all types of vile, vile sins. All types of horrible sins are happening, so much so that God destroyed the earth, save one family. So the world was corrupted and humanity was corrupted. We are not born inclined towards God, born seeking and searching and loving God. No, we're born in rebellion to God until God comes and does something to our hearts, and this is what Moses taught. King David believed the same thing. He said, Lo, Lord, if you should mark our iniquities, who could stand in your presence? That's Psalm 130, verse 3. Earlier in Psalm 51, David confessed, In sin my mother conceived me. He's not talking about his mother's sin. He's saying, As soon as I was conceived, there was sin. I was a sinner from the moment I was conceived. It's in my genetics. I'm born spiritually dead. Psalm 14, again, David, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. So David, King David, also agreed with Moses' anthropology. 
Isaiah, sort of representing the rest of the prophets, he agreed, we're born corrupt, we're born apart from God. He says, all we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to our own way. John reports to us that Jesus said, it's not natural for man to be drawn to God, no. In order for people to come to me, God must draw him. John chapter 6. Paul agrees, he says in Romans chapter 3, beginning of verse 9, all people, both Jews and Greeks, both Jews and Gentiles are under sin. And then he quoted what I just mentioned from Psalm 14, none are righteous. And later in that chapter, all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. He would tell the Christians at the church at Colossae, before you were saved, you were dead in the trespasses of your sin. He would tell the same thing to the people at Ephesus. Before God saved you, you are dead, spiritually speaking. Well, this anthropology has a name. This is a doctrine called total depravity or sometimes radical inability. And this doctrine, total depravity, is not hard to accept when you look at the world, right? When you look at the world, it's easy to see total depravity. Everyone believes in total depravity when they read the newspaper. I heard a fellow on the news this week postulate that if aliens looked down at our world, from a certain angle they would see six billion chimps who'd perfected weapons of death and aim them at each other. This is the way the world is. No one disagrees with total depravity, the doctrine of total depravity, when they're reading the newspaper. I mean, people can easily agree with this doctrine. We get squeamish about the doctrine of total depravity when we look at our own heart, right? We say, no, I was a pretty good person before I was a Christian. I mean, I did good things, and I, I sought after God, and I was a pretty good person. I didn't smoke, drink, dance, or chew, or go with girls that do. I was pretty good. It took me some time, even into my ministry, it took me some time to actually believe what the Bible says about me before I was saved, that I was indeed dead in sin. It took me a while in looking, what does the Bible say about man's condition before salvation? It took me a while to say, okay, I agree. Even if I had some righteous acts, even if I was somehow involved in church and compelled to do church stuff, until God regenerated my heart, until God opened my heart, it's exactly what Moses said to the Israelites. God has to move your heart. God has to open you up. He has to draw you to His Son. It took me some time to agree to that. And my argument was always pride. Well, look at how good I was beforehand. Did you know, I can say something that probably very few of you can, did you know that I actually led some people to Christ before I was saved? but it was in lost self-righteousness. That doesn't mean that I had the Holy Spirit in me. I, I probably did it for, to get a pat on the back from my parents or my church. I was dead in sins, exactly as Paul says, as Jesus says, as John says, as uh, Moses says, as David says. The condition of man prior to salvation is deadness, spiritual deadness, and that's been true from the fall. Uh, it says, 
in Ephesians that not only are we dead in sin, we walked among the sons of disobedience, we lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is the condition of the human heart prior to salvation. The Puritan Thomas Brooks said that before salvation, we have five withouts. We were without Christ, without the church, without the promise, without hope, and without God. And he went on and said, without all these things, how could we say we earnestly sought after God? The answer is we cannot. Deprived of all those spiritual blessings, we are depraved. We're unholy. And even the good that we do, the prophet Isaiah says, is like filthy rags. Any good deeds produced apart from the Holy Spirit our useless self-righteousness. But God, Ephesians chapter 4 goes on to say, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Now the reason I wanted us to park here for a few minutes is because that doctrine is what Peter is drawing on. Look again there what he says in verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But Peter's first argument in being holy and calling us to holiness is to say effectually, you have been saved by God's grace out of darkness, out of sinful passions, out of ignorance, and out of eternal death. Why, if you have been granted this amazing grace of God, why would you go back and try to rejoin all that filth. Why would you go back to that depraved lifestyle? And I think it's even more than that. For those of us who were saved at a younger age, it's hard for us to think that we were too bad back then. By human standards, we were moral people. We were, didn't, hadn't done much. hadn't had time to do much bad. But he's declaring for us that's exactly your trajectory as a child prior to salvation. Your trajectory was to be living out all those things that you were enslaved to spiritually. You didn't even detect it. You didn't even know it until God made you awake to it. Now, why would you want to move away from holiness that has been imputed to you, that's been applied to you, that's been born in your heart and drives you to do what's right? Why would you turn against that and rejoin that old filthy lifestyle? Now, if you think about this, this is, a, this is a very compelling argument for holiness. I mean, I think this should help us. When you look at pornography, you join billions of slimy adulterers, pimps, johns, humans, traffickers, human traffickers, child abusers. That's who you join. That's the filth that you join. When you fly off the handle at your spouse, you join all the angry people, all the abusers, the embittered, depressed people who have no control, even the murderers. Don't be conformed to those passions. That's a world that by God's mercy you were saved out of. When you indulge in your greedy and selfish and you want more authority or more stuff or more power or more money or the next rank, remember you've been saved from that selfish ambition. And you're called to holiness. Don't be conformed to those passions. Fight the residue 
of that slavery that you were once in bondage, that inner child that just indulges himself and has no control. Well, that's Peter's first argument for the pursuit of holiness. You could call it an argument via negativa, by the negative, don't be conformed. The second is a positive argument, verse 15, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. The second argument is to draw in our minds the holiness of God as our objective. Now, I know a lot of folks, when you think of holiness, you think of simple moral perfection. To be holy, some would say, means not sinning, moral rectitude, perfection. But that's not actually what the word holy means. Technically, the word holy means separate. It means to be set apart. It means to be something that's entirely other. Some theologians even say the definition of the holiness of God is the otherness of God. Again, let's go back to the fall of the world and all mankind. Before the fall, the world was good, everything in it, even male and female, whom God had created in His image. And God would come to the earth and He would fellowship and He would walk in that garden in communion with His people. When we sinned, as I said, a separation occurred to use that language going off the Old Testament, the language from Hebrews, a wall of separation was built up between God and man. There was separateness. A curse fell on the whole earth, and everything that man did at that point was woven into his genetics, was woven into that corrupt, dead spirit. It was all to rebel against God. And so holiness is that word that demonstrates that God is on the other side of that wall of separation. He is completely other. Now, from His holiness flow all of His beautiful attributes, which because sin and the curse do not affect him, are morally perfect. From God's holiness flow his justice and his grace. From his holiness flow his mercy and his wrath. From his holiness he has his wills, his sovereign and his moral wills. From his holiness come his providence and his authority. From his holiness comes his word. That's why we call it the Holy Bible. It is unlike, it is separate, it is different than any book or library of books that we can find because it is God-breathed and because God-breathed it is holiness, it is inspired, it is in its original manuscripts inerrant and infallible. Now follow me here. At the fall, when that separation happened, not only did man die spiritually, not only was there a curse rightfully issued by a holy God, but also there was a promise and a plan of reconciliation. From that very moment, God actually promised that there is a way that we can be reconciled to God, that we can actually be holy again. We can actually do this. God was providing that mankind could once again be holy and therefore unified with Him. Ultimately, it was to place their faith and hope in the Messiah, whom He promise there in Genesis 3. But flowing from that faith would be a desire to, to be like God, to be as God is, and that is holy, or to be godly, 
If you've ever done any kind of study in the doctrine of divine simplicity, a lot of times they define holiness as simply God. God's holiness is simply God. And so pursuing holiness is essentially godliness. It's becoming like God. So compelled by God's Spirit, there arises in us as newly awakened spirits, God gives us and compels us by His Spirit to be godly, to represent Him, to be holy as He is holy. That's the desire for holiness. If you read Leviticus, Leviticus is that book where you quit when you're trying to read through the Bible in a year. You get to Leviticus, and over and over, I think it's more than 50 times in the book of Leviticus, you have this quote that Peter gives us, be holy as I am holy. Really, the purpose of Leviticus is to call the people to holiness. So from the top, he says, you can't create an image of me, for I am totally other. All these other people, all their false gods, well, they're just a product of their imagination. And it's the same everywhere you go all over the world. Incidentally, humans are depicted as, gods are depicted as humans with special powers or animals with special powers, or humans combined with animals with special powers. They're not very imaginative. Satan himself is not creative. And so they come up with the same thing, these gods, and they cut them out of wood, or they paint them on a wall, and they worship these false gods. So you walk into Damascus, ancient city of Damascus, and you walk into that city as an Israelite, and you can see all these gods, all these images that people have carved. You walk into the Areopagus, maybe the time of Peter or Paul, and you go up there, and you see all these, this pantheon of all these gods dreamed up, fashioned by human hands. They're not holy. They're just exaggerated forms of humanity. But if you go to Israel, there's not a single statue not one image, not one image cut out of stone or wood. A pagan visiting Jerusalem, not even in their temple, a pagan visiting Jerusalem might ask, where's your gods? Where's your statues? To which the Israelite would reply, we worship the one true God. And He is holy. He is other. He is separate from us. No man can depict Him with our imagination. He is holy, and He is Yahweh, the one true God. In fact, the only thing that could symbolize God were God's, were God's people. His people could symbolize Him. They were to be a representation of God on earth. And so there in Leviticus, God is explaining to them through Moses how they could be holy and how they could represent His holiness he gave them these commands, these rules, some of them moral, some of them to illustrate, in other ways serve the purpose of demonstrating in Israel, in the Israelites, to the world, the holiness of God. This is in large part the book of Leviticus. God is telling the people, for instance, you see these other nations, how their refuse and sewage spills down Main Street? Not so for you. I want you to take a shovel and go do your business outside the camp. 
You see their clothes all mixed and shrink, shrunken and messed up with holes and mildew on them. They're just trying to save a dime. Not so for you. I want you to wear consistent garments. And when they start to get holy or have some mold or have a spot, I want you to wash your bodies and I want you to wash those clothes. And if you can't get rid of it, take it out of the camp and burn it. You're my people. You're to represent my holiness. Animals that scavenge, animals that ingest all the filth on the bottom of the ocean or, or live off of the death of other animals, don't eat them. Because you are to be holy as God is holy. Eat cleanly. Paint your walls. Clean your houses. Keep the streets clear. Can you imagine what Israel, when they were operating properly, would have looked like in comparison to these other ancient cities? It would have been Disneyland. People have walked in there and just been amazed. This place smells good. People's clothes are nice. People are clean and washed, and they're kind to one another. Holiness, indeed, is demonstrated not just in their, their clothes and their food and their rituals. Holiness is demonstrated in their holy living and their relationships. There is no intimacy before marriage. There's no adultery, no murder, no theft. You demonstrate my holiness with morality. Holiness is not morality, but morality flows from holiness. No murder, no theft. You treat your slaves right. You pay your taxes. You rest. You worship in a holy way. A big part of Leviticus is indeed their worship. The people were going to demonstrate in their worship that they worship a different God, a, a holy God. A God who would provide redemption so that they too could be found holy through a sacrifice, ultimately, of God's own Son. And so God wanted this holiness demonstrated over and over again every week, every month, every season, every year, every seven years, every 50 years. Every time they were turning around, they were preparing themselves for some new holy feast. They were making a demonstration of God's holiness and His call to them to be like Him. Now, a little asterisk here, one of the ways among many others how the Israelites failed is that instead of seeing these laws as a way to shine forth God's holiness and redemption, they made these laws into a legalistic list of spiritual achievements whereby they could appease their God and feel good about themselves. It was abominable because... That was no different than any other false god, right? Here's a list of things I want you to do. Do them and you'll appease me. Now, when people did that, God cursed them. God hurt them. He brought down pain and punishment upon them. He put them into slavery to call them away out of that empty worship. They would go through the motions thinking that just by going through the motions, it made them holy before God, and no, it didn't. It was abominable. You don't have a spiritual merit list and pat yourself on the back for accomplishing it. This is called legalism. You've missed the whole point of any moral command in the Bible if you turn it into something like a legalistic list. Legalism is not bad because you can't live up to the demands. It's bad because you can. 
You go away patting yourself on the back, and you miss the whole point, which is to glorify a holy God and to demonstrate His holiness on earth. Well, I think I need to wrap this up. We won't get to the next point. When Moses, then Jesus, and then Peter here say, Be holy, for God is holy. They're not saying, Be morally perfect. No one can actually do that this side of heaven. It means to live a Godward life. Yes, your morals will flow out of the Godward life. It means to seek a, to illustrate and demonstrate the beauty and holiness of God. Of course, this begins with faith in Christ, the decision to, to believe in Jesus Christ, who gave His life, who paid the price, who provided His own righteousness for you. And then to orient your life around what Jesus has done and to live following after Him. And then it becomes a joyous motivation for your obedience to display God, His holiness, to the nations. When people walk into your life, it ought to be like walking into ancient Jerusalem. This is amazing. It's ordered. He actually loves people. He speaks kindly to his wife. He's not bitter about not making money. This person is different. Who's your God? Where's all the false gods that I worship? And you can tell them I worship the one true holy God. You understand now why Peter spent so much time filling us with the joy of God's salvation? Look at all that what he's done for you. And then he gives us these first two commands so that we can live in this dark and broken world as those who've been redeemed, calling others to his marvelous holy light. Well, let's pray that God would give us the grace to do just that. Father, we do thank you for your word, for your truth. We pray that you would give us this holy desire to be holy as you are holy. Father, because of your Son and the work of the Spirit in our lives, even this morning as we read these words and study this text, your Spirit inspires us to be holy, to put away these old passions, to become like obedient children, who reflect the holiness and kindness and graciousness of a triune God. Help us in this, Lord. Bless us in this. Again, for those who don't know you, call them to salvation. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, if you'll stand with me, I'm going to read 2 Thessalonians 2, 16 and 17 as our benediction. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Amen.